If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis puts another win on the board and hits back hard against House Republicans. There's really no one better to talk about all of that than prosecutor turned Congressman Dan Goldman, and he's coming up first. Plus, Donald Trump seems to be freaking out a little because of 14th Amendment lawsuits trying to get him thrown off the ballot. He's even attacking a member of our in house law firm by name. Neil Katiel and Andrew Weissman are here for reaction to that. Also today, what's gotten into Republican Congressman Ken Buck? I'll ask the conservative member of the Freedom Caucus why he's going after Marjorie Taylor Greene and speaking out against an impeachment inquiry of President Biden. And later, my conversation with Senator Amy Klobuchar. I've got a few thoughts about her Republican colleagues talking about a rebrand of the term pro-life. And something tells me she does too. So according to Mark Meadows, Mark Meadows was just doing his job, setting up a call so his boss could pressure the Georgia Secretary of State into finding him some votes. So that's just typical run-of-the-mill chief of staff stuff, right? Nothing to see here, guys. Just doing my job. At least that's been his argument to try and get his case moved to federal court. If he'd been successful, he may have had a more favorable jury pool. So there were some stakes for him. Or in the dream scenario for Meadows, it could have meant dismissal of his case altogether. But late on Friday, a judge in Atlanta flatly rejected his request to move his case. It turns out you can't just claim all of your alleged criming was under the big umbrella of politics as usual. That may work for a talking point, maybe, but it doesn't work under the law. It's a massive setback for Meadows, who has already filed his appeal, and for Donald Trump, who has signaled he might try the same thing. And it was a big, massive victory for District Attorney Fonnie Willis. Now, in part, because their legal strategy doesn't seem to be working, what we're also seeing is Donald Trump and his allies doubling down on their efforts to discredit the prosecutors, basically accusing them of politicizing the legal process. But the truth is, and if you look at this week especially, when you look at all of what's happening, the only people who are politicizing these cases are aligned with Donald Trump. For all the right-wing talk about political persecution, we learned this week that D.A. Willis had the opportunity to indict as many, as many as twice as many people, including a sitting Republican senator. But she didn't. Obviously, that's based on the law, but she didn't. According to the special grand jury's final report, which was made public Friday, it turns out they not only recommended charges against Trump and his now indicted co-defendants, but also for 21 other individuals who D.A. Willis ultimately chose not to indict. Those individuals include a number of prominent political players, like former Georgia senators David Perdue and Kelly Loeffler and current sitting Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina. And while it's unclear exactly why those 21 people didn't ultimately face charges, the report reveals how this expansive criminal case in Georgia could have been far more sprawling than it already is. So if anything, it demonstrates that Fonnie Willis, for one reason or another, showed a great deal of restraint. Contrast that with Congressman Jim Jordan's approach. Remember back before he took the gavel on the Judiciary Committee, Congressman Jordan gave this very candid take about the role of investigations and how he saw it. The political nature 
of our Justice Department is frightening. And so that's something if we get if we get the majority we need to look at and a host of other issues. All those things need to be investigated just so you have the truth. Plus, that will help frame up the 2024 race when I hope and I think President Trump is going to run again and we need to make sure that he wins. Using investigations to, quote, help frame up the 2024 race. That's called saying the quiet part out loud. I can't think of anything more political than that, really. And true to his word, Jim Jordan has been running cover for Donald Trump ever since. On the same day Trump got his mugshot taken at the Fulton County Jail, Jordan and the Judiciary Committee launched an investigation into Willis. To be clear, it is not normal for Congress to insert itself in local prosecutions. And this week, D.A. Willis had a scathing reply. In a nine-page response to Jordan, she wrote, quote, Your attempt to invoke congressional authority is flagrantly at odds with the Constitution. Your letter makes clear that you lack a basic understanding of the law, its practice, and the ethical obligations of attorneys generally and prosecutors specifically. She even added, perhaps my favorite part, a bit of a tip for the congressman, quote, For a more thorough understanding of Georgia's RICO statute, I encourage you to read RICO State by State. As a non-member of the bar, you can purchase a copy for $249. Joining me now is Democratic Congressman Dan Goldman of New York. Before getting to Congress, he was an assistant U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York. Congressman, thank you so much for joining me here this afternoon. So I want to start with your view on this. It's great to see you. I wanted to start with your view on this letter. I'm sure you read uh, Fonnie Willis's response. What did you think of her response to Jim Jordan? Well, I thought it was very powerful and very correct. And she pointed out now that this is yet another investigation where the House Republicans are using the authority of their majority in Congress to intervene and obstruct an ongoing criminal prosecution. And she was right to say that it's one thing if it were a federal prosecution, which, of course, Jim Jordan and the House Republicans are also trying to do with the special counsel, Jack Smith. But it's altogether a wholly different thing when the federal government is trying to intervene in a state prosecution. Mm -hmm. Um, And I thought she did a very good job of laying out why uh, this is an abuse of power, an abuse of authority by the House Republicans to do the bidding of Donald Trump purely to use their power to defend Donald Trump, as Jim Jordan said, to frame up the 2024 election. It's a gross abuse of power. It is far outside their jurisdiction. Uh, it is against the law based on recent Supreme Court uh, decisions, and it really needs to stop. So outside of creating a spectacle, which is clearly the goal here, help us understand, is there, is there anything that Jim Jordan actually has the ability to do from his perch to derail Fonnie Willis's investigation? Well, you need only look at Jim Jordan himself, who defied a congressional subpoena uh, by the January 6th committee and refused to appear. Um, the only thing that could happen, in theory, is that Jim Jordan could subpoena Fonnie Willis. Uh, if she does not show, she could be held in contempt, and she would be potentially referred, have to be referred by the entire House to the Department of Justice. Uh, there's no way the Department of Justice would ever prosecute Fonnie Willis. So Jim Jordan's power is somewhat 
somewhat limited uh, from a legal standpoint, but from the public standpoint in the right-wing ecosphere, Jim Jordan is trying to drum up uh, and continue to pursue this bogus notion of uh, political partisan prosecutions. And, and I think you pointed out exactly why we know that Fonnie Willis's prosecution is uh, within the bounds of the law. If she were doing this from a political partisan standpoint, she, of course, would have charged three Republican senators uh, who were recommended to be charged by the grand jury. Instead, she used her discretion following the facts and the law to make a discretionary and, and judicious decision to prosecute only those who she thought she could prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. So this is all a charade. This is once again the House Republicans trying to do the bidding of Donald Trump rather than uh, promoting accountability for those who have violated the law. As you just referenced, Congressman, we, we did learn the identities of a number of people who were not indicted in Georgia, but were recommended by char for charges by the special grand jury. You were a prosecutor. You know the players involved. Why do you think they got off the hook? Well, look, I think a, a grand jury uh, is incredibly important as a check and balance to make sure that uh, prosecutors are pursuing uh, proper prosecutions. Um, and in this case, it was clear the grand jury felt like there were uh, more crimes than ultimately were charged. But just like we are seeing in the Hunter Biden investigation, it is ultimately up to the prosecutor, not an investigator, not a grand jury, to determine, based on the facts, law, and evidence, what charges can be proved beyond a reasonable doubt to a jury of 12 peers. And like any good prosecutor, the district attorney, Fonnie Willis, made that discretionary decision because the buck stops with her. It doesn't stop with the grand jury. The grand jury is an important step. And so she used her discretion to determine that uh, only the 19 that she charged, she felt like she could prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. And that's how the system should work. Uh, that's how it appears to be working with the Hunter Biden investigation, where ultimately the prosecutor, not the investigators, have to make those decisions because they have to prove the case. And that's clearly what she did here. So back here in Washington, Congress is returning later this month. You were the lead majority counsel in the first impeachment of Donald Trump. Kevin McCarthy has been making a lot of noise about moving forward with a process uh, toward an impeachment inquiry of President Biden. If that were to happen, what Will Congress or the White House be able to get anything done at all over the next year? I mean, this could suck up a lot of oxygen and time and effort and energy. Right. I mean, the, the timing of it is interesting. We are hitting the end of the fiscal year, September 30th. The Senate has passed all 12 of their appropriations bills through committee. They are now taking them onto the floor to be done by September 30th. The House, the House Republicans have passed one out of 12. There's no indication that they can get their own act in order and they can make any agreements among themselves to actually pass these bills and keep the government open. And part of the reason that they're running into trouble is that they are going back on their own agreement uh, in the debt ceiling bill, and they're mm -hmm. undercutting the top line amount in the appropriations bills that they agreed to. And so this is the constant and persistent dysfunction, chaos, uh, and just complete disorganization on the part of the Republicans who cannot 
run the government. And instead, what they are doing is focusing on doing the bidding of Donald Trump, distracting from Donald Trump and trying to launch a completely baseless, meritless impeachment investigation. Uh, it is one thing to uh, actually go forward with any misconduct. But we're not talking about impeaching Hunter Biden. Hunter Biden is being dealt with by the Department of Justice. There is no evidence, none whatsoever. And I don't care how much they say otherwise. I have looked at it. There is no direct evidence that President Biden was involved in any way, shape or form in Hunter Biden's business dealings. And they would be going forward with an impeachment inquiry based on lies. Congressman Dan Goldman, couldn't be more clear than that. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's always a pleasure talking to you. Thank you, Jen. Before we go to break, we wanted to give you a brief update on the 6.8 magnitude earthquake that struck Morocco late Friday night. Right now, we know more than 2,100 people have been killed. More than 2,000 others are injured across three provinces, and rescue workers are continuing to dig through the rubble for survivors. Leaders from around the world, including the United States, have offered assistance to the leaders and people of Morocco. Given the earthquake happened less than 48 hours ago, the extent of their needs aren't yet clear. But there's no question they will need a great deal of support in the months ahead. We have lots more to get to this hour. Republican Congressman Ken Buck, Democratic Senator Amy Klobuchar, Neil Katyal, and Andrew Weissman, our in-house law firm, are all coming. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support anytime you don't have to hide how you feel hey everyone it's ted from consumer cellular the guy in the orange sweater and this is your wake-up call if you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Yeah, so stay with us. My next guest has been taken on Republicans on multiple fronts lately. He's speaking out against a push by some House Republicans to launch an impeachment inquiry into President Biden. He just stood up to the Colorado GOP, dismantling their false claims that January 6th defendants are being, quote, grossly mistreated and abused. He even lobbed a savage clap back at Marjorie Taylor Greene, making sure she understands that her stint teaching CrossFit does not make her a legal expert. Oh, and... He happens to be a conservative Republican and a member of the House Freedom Caucus, Congressman Ken Buck of Colorado. And the congressman joins me now. Congressman, thank you so much for being with me this afternoon. My pleasure, Ken. It's been really interesting to watch you on multiple occasions speak out so forcefully against the push to launch an impeachment inquiry into Joe Biden. You've also pushed back on the claim that January 6th inmates are being mistreated. Why have you been so vocal about all of these issues now? 
Well, Jen, we have really important issues facing this country. And as Republicans, we need to stay focused on the border. We need to stay focused on crime, particularly in urban areas. We need to stay focused on inflation. Those are issues that Americans care about, and they want to see a change in leadership in the White House as a result of those. If we start going down these paths that that really bear no fruit, we, we are not going to get an impeachment through the Senate. We're not going to, uh, uh, you know, the the idea that, that somehow the January 6th prisoners are being treated differently than other prisoners in a jail that has a history of, of real abuse and, and uh, uh, poor conditions uh, is just not true. And so uh, we can waste our time on issues that are not important, or we can focus on issues that are. The reality is that the uh, impeachment uh, process is one that is going on right now. The Judiciary Committee, the Oversight Committee, the Ways and Means Committee are all investigating. They're they're developing really good information about Hunter Biden. I agree with uh, Dan, uh, your last guest, that there is not a strong connection at this point between the evidence on Hunter Biden and any evidence connecting the president. So I am uh, more focused on the issues that I think Americans care deeply about. Well, perhaps Congressman Marjorie Hiller Greene, who you have been pretty vocal in, in pushing back on, is getting your message. Because yesterday she posted, quote, this, quote, our country deserves for Congress to vote for an impeachment inquiry for very important reasons, not a rush impeachment vote. That is a bit of a shift in the timeline, a little bit of a pumping of the brakes on it. What did you make of that? Well, Marjorie filed impeachment uh, articles of impeachment on President Biden before he was sworn into office more than two and a half years ago. So the idea that that she is now the expert on impeachment or that she is uh, someone who should set the timing on impeachment is absurd. Uh, the the time for impeachment is the time when there's evidence linking President Biden, uh, if there's evidence linking President Biden to a high crime or misdemeanor. That doesn't exist right now, um, and it isn't really something that we can say, well, in February, we're going to do this. It, it is, it's based on the facts. You go where the facts take you. And there has been a, look, a search for that for some time, I think it's worth stating. But you also have been asked a number of times, but I wanted to ask you about Kevin McCarthy's speakership and whether he's at risk. You know, there's there's a couple of things on his plate right now, as there's for any speaker. One, trying to pass a short-term spending bill, which I know you've said may require Democratic votes. Everyone won't like that. And there's also this pressure on him to move forward on an impeachment inquiry, move forward in a process uh, to impeach President Biden. Which which one do you think is a bigger risk to his speakership at this point in time? Well, Jen, I think there's a perfect storm brewing in uh, the House uh, in the near future in September. Uh, on the one hand, we've got to pass a, a continuing resolution. Uh, and we also have uh, the impeachment issue. And we also have uh, members uh, of the House, uh, led by my good friend uh, Chip Roy, who are concerned about policy issues. They want riders in the appropriations bills, amendments in the appropriations bills that guarantee some type of uh, security on our southern border. So you take those three things put together, and Kevin McCarthy, the speaker, has made promises on each of those issues to different groups, and now it, it is all coming due at the same time. It's going to be very difficult to pass a continuing resolution with Republican votes, uh, only Republican votes. And so um, I think if he reaches across the aisle and and uh, gets Democrat votes and goes with a, a higher number than he has promised before, um, I think that uh, that is the issue really that I think uh, will cause him problems uh, down the road. Do, do you think with all these hurdles, he's still speaker come the end of this year? 
I do. I, I don't see anybody else that uh, really has, has risen up and is willing to take on this job. Um, having a five-vote majority, uh, you, you wouldn't wish that on your worst enemy in, in terms of being Speaker of the U.S. House. And so the, it is very difficult for him to uh, operate the House in a way that keeps everybody happy. I think there will be challenges, but uh, I don't see anybody stepping up and say, um, I'll take Kevin's job. So I think that's really what, what saves Kevin is, is the, the lack of enthusiasm on anybody else uh, to do the job. This week, your home state of Colorado joined the list of states where a legal battle is brewing over whether the 14th Amendment disqualifies Trump from being president because of January 6th. You've been a DOJ prosecutor, district attorney, a law school instructor. I could go through more of your bio. But do you think the 14th Amendment disqualifies Trump? I don't. I think that uh, the, the same uh, issue has been raised to try to bar uh, different members of Congress. In fact, I think it was raised with Marjorie in uh, Georgia, um, and it has not uh, succeeded in, the, in those cases. And I don't think it will succeed with President Trump, nor do I think it should, frankly. Uh, let the voters decide. That's what this country is about. Uh, the 14th Amendment uh, passed uh, right after the um, uh, Civil War was meant for one set of circumstances. Um, I think that the voters should make a decision in this in this case. Congressman Ken Buck, thank you so much for joining me this afternoon. And up next, could Donald Trump really get thrown off the ballot under the 14th Amendment? And why is he attacking our friend Andrew Weissman on Truth Social? We'll try to answer both of those questions with our in-house law firm after the break. And later, I'll ask Senator Amy Klobuchar what she thinks about the Fulton County Grand Jury recommending charges against one of her Republican colleagues. We'll be right back. Is Donald Trump constitutionally eligible to appear on the ballot? Really depends on who you ask, because legal experts are divided in part because we have never dealt with this before. And it all revolves around the 14th Amendment. We keep talking about the 14th Amendment, so important, which states that no person can be elected if they, quote, engaged in insurrection or rebellion after taking an oath to uphold the Constitution. There are a number of states where this issue is being hotly debated, including Arizona, New Hampshire, and Ohio. And this week, six voters with the help of a watchdog group in Colorado have filed a motion citing the 14th Amendment to remove Trump's name from their state's ballot. Trump then filed a motion to get this case moved from Colorado state court to federal court. But then his, real, his lawyers realized that maybe they don't have the standing to do that. Trump's legal team reversed course and filed a motion saying they are not opposed to a Colorado state court weighing in on this question of the 14th Amendment. So don't worry, even Trump's own lawyers are a bit confused. And as for Trump himself, he seems kind of concerned. He posted this on Truth Social, quote, the group suing me in Colorado to ridiculously try and unconstitutional to keep me off the ballot is a Trump deranged crew. And one of my next guests considers it a badge of honor to be called out by his by name in this post. And the law firm of Neil Katyal and Andrew Weissman joins me now. So, Andrew, I have to start with you because you were you have a badge of honor. You were called out by Donald Trump on Truth Social. I'm a little confused by this Colorado case. Walk us through how Trump's legal team is looking at this at this point. Well, this is a novel issue because we haven't had this situation with a former president now uh, seeking to be elected who has by all accounts, colloquially engaged in insurrection. We all sort of watched it and have seen the evidence of that. But there are some very complicated legal issues. And as you noted, Jen, there are uh, legal scholars on both sides. I would note that there are very prominent conservative 
scholars and judges who have said that it does apply to former President Trump. Um, obviously, I think this will end up at the Supreme Court to decide the issue. I I would agree with your last guest that politically it may be better for the country if people can vote on this and not, have it not decided on uh, the basis of a uh, provision in the Constitution. But we can't avoid that any more than if it turned out that someone who was 34 years old was running for president, they would be disqualified. They're not qualified under the Constitution. So this really does have to be decided by the Supreme Court about whether he is actually qualified to be uh, the next president of the United States. So, Neil, first of all, welcome back from Burning Man. We're, we're so relieved you're <laughs> safe. Um, but I, you, there's few people who know as much about the Supreme Court than you, more, no more than you. If they were to—if this goes to the Supreme Court, which Andrew was saying, I think you agree that that's where it will land, land. what is the timeline? Could this happen before the New Hampshire primary, or is that too fast? So, so first of all, I think that Trump's attacks on Andrew are totally wrong, and it's directed at the wrong target. What Trump is really attacking is the 14th Amendment itself, mm-hmm. and the, in particular Section 3, which bars insurrectionists mm-hmm. from holding office, of which he certainly looks like one. Representative Bingham wrote that. This is not the first time that Donald Trump has attacked the 14th Amendment. That's really what the attacks are. Now, with respect to the Supreme Court, I think absolutely this can be decided well before February. It's already percolating in the Colorado courts. Mm-hmm. I think in Colorado, it'll have a good chance of success because of this legal concept called standing, which in Colorado allows voters, including the six Republican and independent voters who brought this lawsuit here, to basically have standing. That's different than, like, Florida, where a case was thrown out. Mm -hmm. So I think it will succeed in in Colorado, or at least succeed and go up through the Colorado courts, and then it'll reach the U.S. Supreme Court and can be expedited in time for a decision by February. So much in the Supreme Court. I just want to move on to the Georgia case here, because Meadows' request to move his criminal case to a federal court was denied. He's now appealing. If you're on Trump's legal team, how are you, Andrew, I'm going to start with you, how are you interpreting this? Are you going to move forward or are you stopping the presses? Well, I could see him wanting to move forward because it's a way of having some potential delay. But, you know, there is a big difference between uh, Mr. Meadows and Mr. Trump. Meadows testified, um, and he has the burden, so he went forward and testified to try and carry his burden. Um, we'll rem- it'll remain to be seen whether a court of appeals uh, disagrees with the district judge, but I can't imagine that Donald Trump is going to testify. And if he doesn't testify, it's hard to see how he is going to meet his burden. Remember, it's the movement's burden here. So Donald Trump is in a very different situation uh, because of that. And then obviously the merits of the district judge decision is resoundingly against uh, removal in the case of um, of the foreign president. If you're not going to remove as to Mark Meadows, you certainly aren't going to remove as to the former president. So if Trump does this, does he have to testify or is that part of the deal? So I agree with my law partner, Andrew, uh, that basically, uh, you know, he does, as a practical matter, have to testify. And that's particularly so because Judge Jones's 49-page opinion mm-hmm. eviscerates the claim of removal for Mark Meadows and, by definition, really does it for Trump as well. You've got to be performing a federal function. And what the judge says is the executive branch is cut out of federal functions when it comes to presidential elections, because the last thing you want is for an incumbent president to use his power 
powers in office to try and keep himself in office, and that's what the founders feared. So the other big development this week was that a grand jury report uh, was released that disclosed the names of people recommended for charges, but ultimately not charged. For, for, so for those of us who are just learning a lot about the law and the legal process, how common is that? So grand juries sometimes do recommend more people for indictment than, than the prosecutor ultimately indicts. And that's because grand juries are only privy to one side of the case. Sometimes prosecutors have more. And also there are strategic reasons. So here, for example, I think Fawny Willis looked at the 32 people, including like Senator Lindsey Graham, two other former U.S. senators who were recommended for indictment and said, I don't need to do that. I've got this airtight case against 19 people, including Donald Trump. And by the way, if I do these U.S. senators, those might be removed because those aren't people in the executive branch. You could move those cases to federal court that could gum up everything. So I think she made a very smart strategic decision. So, Andrew, moving into the federal election interference case, the D.C. grand jury met again this week. Uh, what additional lines of investigation or what could be going on behind the scenes with Jack Smith right now? So I think there there are a lot of lines of investigation. So we know that the existing indictment names six unindicted co-conspirators, um, but there is very detailed uh allegations in that indictment. So there could be additional fact-finding as to those six people, uh, such as Rudy Giuliani, John Eastman, uh, Jeff Clark, a whole—Sidney Powell, a bunch of others. Um, in addition, we've heard about an ongoing investigation into financial fraud. In other words, that a mm. PAC is raising money based on false pretenses. I sort of really like that one because I can really see that as a clean case. And it also can lead to pretrial forfeiture, uh, meaning that if that case is brought against the PAC and members of the PAC, um, the government can seek to forfeit and, and essentially freeze money now um, that is being used for improper purposes. So those are there's at least two potential uh, things that could be going on in the D.C. grand jury. Before we let you go, do you think there's more indictments coming? Are we I, watching for that? I do. And, and part of the reason is Donald Trump's M.O. is obstruction of justice. It's interference. It's using one lawyer for a bunch of co-defendants to try and get them all on the same page. And we've seen this already in the Mar-a-Lago stolen documents investigation in which the IT guy, Yusel Tavares, has basically flipped his stories, now cooperating. And there's a massive obstruction investigation going on there. And I suspect something similar might happen with respect to January 6th as well. So much to watch here. Thank you both, as always, for walking us through all of it. Up next, Republicans are apparently discussing a shift away from the term pro-life. Newsflash, guys, the term is not the problem. I'll take you through this doomed attempt at a rebrand after the break. And later, Senator Amy Klobuchar reacts to Lindsey Graham, saying meddling in Georgia's election was just a part of his job. We're back after a very quick break. For decades, Republicans have made one thing abundantly clear. They are the pro-life party. I intend to push for these pro-life measures just as hard as I know how. My position has not changed. I am uh, pro-life. Uh, pro, uh, pro I'm also uh, have been, continue to be pro-life. I'm pro-life. I'm a pro-life candidate. 
and I've been a pro-life governor. I'm proud to be pro-life, and I'm not going to be, be apologizing okay. for people for becoming pro-life. Proudly pro-life. Unapologetically pro-life. 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 As you know, I'm pro-life. Right? I think you know that. You heard them. It, it could not be more clear where they stand on this issue. And if you need one more data point, let me just read from the Republican platform in both 2012 and 2016. Quote, abortion endangers the health and well-being of women, and we stand firmly against it. For years, many Republicans ran on the platform of overturning a woman's right to choose. But then something happened. They caught the car. Roe v. Wade was overturned, effectively ending all federal protections on abortions. So the GOP finally got what they wanted. But it turns out Americans, including a majority of independents, did not like it. An NBC News poll from June shows that 61 percent of all voters disapproved of the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe. And this issue didn't just register in polls. It actually swayed elections. Just last month in Ruby Red, Ohio, voters sided with defenders of abortion rights. In Wisconsin earlier this year, a winning candidate's pro-choice message helped her flip the balance of the state Supreme Court. In the Republican stronghold of Kansas, doesn't get much more Republican stronghold than that, voters chose to protect abortion rights in their state. And of course, in the 2022 midterm elections, the Republican Party vastly underperformed expectations. There was no red wave, largely because of their opposition to reproductive rights. Now, facing another uh, major election, the GOP is in a bit of a pickle, and they know it. They're even meeting behind closed doors to discuss it. According to new reporting from NBC, Republican strategists are exploring a shift away from pro-life messaging on abortion after consistent Election Day losses for the GOP when reproductive rights were on the ballot. The reporting details a closed-door meeting this past week where Senate Republicans were presented with poll results that showed the term pro-life no longer resonated with voters. No kidding. Senator Josh Hawley actually said this with a straight face. Many voters think pro-life means you're for no exceptions in favor of abortion ever. A little memo to Mr. Hawley. In Missouri, which is the state you represent, abortion law makes no exceptions for rape or incest. No exceptions for rape or incest. But they don't seem to be wrapped up in these pesky little details of the actual impact of the policy because they are seeking a rebrand. Pro-life now becomes, in the words of Indiana Senator Todd Young, pro-baby. Pro-baby. I hate to break it to you, but if you call broccoli candy, it's still just broccoli. If you tie a really nice bow around a lump of coal, it is still coal under there. The branding isn't the problem here. The policy is the problem. And no matter what they call it, the truth is the Republican platform has long been pro-life. But for the sake of argument, because there should always be a bridge back to good policymaking, in Washington, D.C. especially, if they wanted to be pro-baby— Maybe they should stop opposing new childcare and parental leave programs or food stamps for low-income women and young children. I could go on. It is hard to roll out an effective rebrand for a product that customers hate. That's a big old marketing tool piece of advice for you. And if I were them, I also wouldn't want to run in a platform of anti-rights, anti-choice, anti-women either. I have a feeling Senator Amy Klobuchar has a few thoughts on this. And she joins me next.
Welcome back. Joining me now is Democratic Senator Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota. She's also a former prosecutor, so we are going to cover a lot of ground today. So I want to start, Senator, with some of this reporting from NBC News that Republicans are trying to find a new term for pro-life. I'm sure you've seen this. How do you think that attempted rebrand is going to play out there with voters? You know, I don't think you can rebrand what's been going on. When you look at places like Ohio and the vote we saw in Kansas and the Supreme Court election in Wisconsin, where the people of this country—Democrats, moderate Republicans, independents—have turned out and said, you know what, we want women to be able to make their own decisions about their health care and not politicians. So I don't mm -hmm. think any fancy rebrand will help with that. And by the way, if they want to help kids and stand on the side of kids, then you're looking at things like, we want to get done child care, uh, we want to get done work-family leave, um, uh, permanent uh, child tax credit, all those things. But right now, when it becomes to freedom, um, they have not backed down on their position after the Dobbs reversal. They've actually doubled down, running to the state houses, governors, legislators, trying to see who can get there first to pass the most restrictive law. Um, so I don't think people are going to care about a rebrand. I think what they, what they want to see is a change in policy and a change in politics and the change in leaders that they're putting up there. Sometimes it's about the policy, right? Also in that reporting, the National Republican Senatorial Committee is, quote, encouraging Republicans to clearly state their opposition to a national abortion ban. Now, there may not be a lot of bright lights. You mentioned a lot of what's happening in state legislatures, but that was kind of an interesting shift, or I read it that way. What did you make of it? Uh, yeah, because we've actually had that introduced in the Senate. We've had a number of people mm -hmm. in Congress on the Republican side say that they're in favor of it. And the answer here, of course, is pretty straightforward. We need to codify Roe v. Wade into law. That's what Democrats want to do. That's what President Biden wants to do. Um, and so this whole rebrand part isn't going to change the fact that you have so many states now uh, where women are having to travel just to get their health care. You've got Tommy Tuberville uh, telling the uh, women in the military, uh, too bad, I'm not going to let the policies that have applied for health care in the past apply to you and what you need. That's what's going on right now in the Republican Party. So no rebrand is going to change the fact that he's holding up now 319 military positions uh, over abortion. That's what people are watching for. No question. And you've been incredibly outspoken, as you just were, about Senator Tuberville, his, his effort to kind of hold up U.S. military promotions, as you just mentioned. You've proposed, actually, a rules change that could help expedite the confirmation process. Uh, what else do you think can be done to stop something like what Senator Tuberville is trying to do from preventing it from happening again? <laughs> well, First of all, it is really clear. The Republicans that work with Tommy Tuberville, who he will listen to, they need to pressure him to lift these holds. Um, we have a morale issue for our troops. We've got a national security issue. He's holding up the commandant of the Marines, but they've never had that happen for 100 years. They've always had someone in charge. Right when we need military readiness, he's holding up the cybercom commander, uh, when we see cyber more and more be the weapon of war. And 
and he's holding up the commander of our air forces in mm -hmm. the Pacific while there's reported meetings that are going to occur between Vladimir Putin and Kim Jong-un. So I do go back to the basics that, yes, I always want to see rule changes. I'd get rid of the filibuster. I would uh, do all kinds of things differently. But the point is, right now, in the crisis we're in, with this assault on our command, um, we need to simply get him to lift the holds. That is the fastest way to do it. No question. This week, we also learned that a special grand jury recommended charges for your colleague, Senator Lindsey Graham, though prosecutors chose not to indict him. I want to play uh, you what he said in response, and we'll talk about it on the other side. What I did was consistent with my job as being United States Senator, chairman of the Judiciary Committee. I think the system in this country is getting off the rails, and we have to be careful not to use the legal system as a political tool. So you're a senator, you're a former prosecutor. There's been a lot of questions right now about what is viable and, and, and legal and not in, in terms of people's actions. What do you make of that defense, that meddling in state elections is consistent with a job in the Senate? <laughs> Well, I'm not going to focus as much on Senator Graham here, because as a former prosecutor, you know, I believe in the actual evidence and facts, and the prosecutor in this case made a decision uh, not to move forward. But his point, his point um, about elections—I mean, come on now. We have a presidential candidate in Donald Trump that's been indicted in four different places with different people, grand jurors, and I have seen this grand jury system up close, from different walks of life in states from Georgia uh, to New York, in places from Florida, as different as that is from D.C., that have decided to indict the former president on various charges. So, that's what I'm looking at right now. And I think when you've got someone and you have the evidence that was laid out in Georgia, where you have people that have clearly meddled in our election, when you have a former president that, while he was president, called the Republican secretary of state and said, find me the votes and use the exact number uh, that were needed uh, to overturn a valid election. Uh, you can't have that occur in our country. And both Democrats and Republicans has spoken out against it. So, in America, the law is king. The president isn't king, no matter how much money and how much rhetoric and how much he throws at things. It is the law that's king. And that's what you see happening right now um, with the prosecutions of those that participated in an insurrection on the United States Capitol and what you see uh, in the ongoing proceedings. Senator Amy Klobuchar, we can cover so much with you because you work on so many things. Uh, thank you so much for joining me this afternoon. Well, I really thanks, appreciate Jen. it. It was super fun to be on. Go Vikings. I'm wearing my purple. Bye. <laughs> Go Bengals. We're coming right back after a quick break. Stay with us. If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, hang it in there. Because. If I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. 
If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Eleven years ago, Coco Goff was just an eight-year-old girl dancing in the stands at the U.S. Open with big dreams about doing big things in tennis. Well, last night, Coco Goff walked out of that same stadium a U.S. Open champion. She didn't win the first set, but she battled back to win the next two. And for those two sets, that stadium she danced in as a little eight-year-old girl belonged to her. At just 19 years old, she became the youngest American to win an open title since a 17-year-old named Serena Williams did it back in 1999. And after the match, Goff made a point of thanking the people who didn't believe in her. I loved this. She said, quote, to those who thought they were putting water on my fire, you were really adding gas to it. I'm burning so bright right now. And what a message that is for every eight-year-old girl with big dreams to hear, and to all of us, really. That does it for me today. Be sure to follow the show on Twitter, TikTok, and Instagram. And a reminder, you can listen to every episode of the show as a podcast for free. Search for Inside with Jen Psaki wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back here next Sunday at noon Eastern. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because, If I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel.